So we're in week two of a new series uh, we've entitled Led by Presence. And uh, last week we started this series by uh, really showing us the story of the Bible that there is one major theme from Genesis to Revelation, and that is that God has created us for his presence, that we, when we were created for the sole purpose of enjoying him in relationship and that uh, sin robbed that from us. Uh, now, uh, the redemptive work of Christ, we now can have relationship with God again, reconciled, filled with his spirit. And then when it's all said and done, uh, God is going to once again on earth dwell with us. We, his people, he, our God, his presence among us once again. This is the entire storyline of the Bible. And this really is important because it hits us at the soul, at the core of who we are. The soul's craving in humanity is for the presence of God to fill us, to, for us to experience him each and every day. So God created us for this. When it's all said and done, those who've been redeemed will experience it. And now there's this outworking of his presence in our life again. This morning, we're going to talk about the centrality of the presence of God, the centrality. You'll understand what I mean by that as we move through this. Let me illustrate it like this. Football season is here. Um, next weekend, high schools all over the, the, the nation, specifically Texas, because who cares about football outside of Texas? Hello. Um, high school stadiums all over the state of Texas are going to begin to gather, and, uh, and, and colleges are going to start playing football in two weeks, some, some maybe next week, but most schools in two weeks. And so here's what's going to happen. Something that links all of these high school uh, games and college games uh, together. This hit me this week. It's not going to hit you as much as it did me, because I'm simple-minded, um, but something that connects all of these games that'll be played in the next couple of weeks and months is this, is that as these stadiums are filled with people coming to witness the football game, there is one common link that all of these locations are going to have, and that is this, is that the field of play where the game is going to be played is going to happen at the very center of the stadium or the center of the arena. And you're like, Duh, where else would it be? Because you're not gonna go to a stadium and go watch a football game where when you get into the stadium, everyone's looking at each other and you're looking over your shoulder outside the arena or outside the stadium to find what you're looking for. You're gonna have it where? Right there in the center, why? Because that is why you're there. The thing that is most central is gonna be at the center of the arena, of the stadium. Now there's gonna be other things that are happening and those things that are happening, the peripheral things like concession stand and vendors and different things you can buy, little areas you get coffee at, at these uh, games and these arenas. Now, it's all there, but those things exist to enhance what? The most important thing, which is watching the game, putting all of your focus on the field of play. Why? Because that is where the action is and that is why you're there. Everything that is significant is happening on the field, and that is why it is at the center of the stadium or the arena. Now, imagine going to a significant football game, like you get to go to the national championship for college football and watch the game between Alabama and whoever they're going to be, right? I'm not an Alabama fan. Hello, Jeff Manning over here. Uh, but that's inevitable, is it not? Uh, so you're gonna, you get a ticket, or you get a ticket to the Super Bowl to watch my man Tom Brady. Maybe not so much. Um, but you get there, and here's what you do. You're there to watch the, the greatest game of the year, either for college sports or for the NFL. And imagine you get there, 
but you spend the entire game at the concession stand. You're there at the game, but instead of getting to the place where your attention is where it's supposed to be, you experience the entire game, watching it on the little television while you're getting your hot dog or your, uh, your pretzel, and you're just hanging out up there, and you're missing all of the action on the field. Now, everybody say stupid. This is the one time, kids, your parents would let you say it, okay? That would be stupid, would it not be? Why? Because are you kidding me? You're at the biggest game of the year. You got tickets and you're there and you're, you're, you're gonna be able to watch the game. But instead of getting in your seat, putting your attention at the very central part of the stadium of the arena, you're hanging out there munching on a pretzel, watching it on a 19 inch screen rather than sitting there and absorbing all of the action. That would be foolish, right? Everybody say, yes, it would. Here's the epiphany that I have about my own life and about many believers and Christians. And I say this about me because I wanna reiterate what I said last week. I am on this journey with you. So my confession to you is this, is that that illustration is the way that I have lived most of my Christian life. Is that the, the very central purpose of our salvation is for us to encounter the presence of God, to be the very center of who I am, to be the very center of who we are as the church. For, for us to understand where's the action of the Christian life, it is in the presence of God. It is to be uh, his spirit right in the middle of us where our attention is focused and all of our emphasis in experiencing him. And for most of my life, and if you were to be honest, most of your Christian lives, here's what we've done. We've spent our Christian life at the concession stand. In the peripherals. Now here's what I mean. So many of us, man, we do all of the stuff in ministry, the peripheral stuff that's there to enhance what? The most important thing, and that is encountering, experiencing the presence of God. All of the ministries and all the things that we do are really to aid this thing called encountering God with our life as his people. But so many of us, we check off the Bible study and the prayer and we go to church and we do some life group and we volunteer occasionally and we, we do all the peripheral and never really ask the question, am I experiencing where the life where the action is? And am I encountering personally the power of the manifest presence of God in my life? Listen, that is why we've been redeemed. But confession for me, and prayerfully, if you're honest, confession for you, most of our Christian lives are not encountering the field. We're at the concession stand. And here's what I want us to see this morning. I want us to jump in this morning and see, listen, it is all about the presence of God. And that if we're going to experience the power of God unleashed in our lives, if we are gonna be men and women individually and a, the body of Christ corporately who, who encounters the spirit-filled power of God, listen, the presence of God must become central in our life, not peripheral. So grab your Bibles and let's go to Exodus chapter 29. Exodus 29. Now you're gonna turn there and then you're gonna think pastor's never gonna get there and then I'm probably gonna get there. I promise I'm gonna get there, all right? So Exodus 29, make your way there. If you're an overachiever, hold 29 and go to 40 because we'll get there as well. Those will be our two primary texts this morning. Let me catch you up on the story so you'll know where we are in Exodus 29. 
So immediately after the fall, you begin to see something in the, in the story of God. His redemptive work, you, you see a phrase that says something like this uh, in I think chapter five of Genesis, and it was at this time that men began to call on the name of the Lord. So you see, shortly after the fall, prayer began to be something that humanity experienced. There was this epiphany, hey, the creator that's out there that we've been separated from, hey, listen, he listens when we talk to him. And if we call on his name, he answers. And so you begin to see, even though the relationship was severed, that God was allowing humanity to engage in relationship with limitations. And then you begin to see something else unfold. Certain key figures begin to emerge in the story of the Bible, and there's one common link that they all have. It says about this about them. It says, and they walked with God. Now, what that looked like, we don't quite understand. We know it wasn't like the Garden of Eden, but here's what we do know, that in a limited way, God was reestablishing relationship with humanity. There's a guy named Enoch. It says that Enoch walked with God. A guy named Noah comes up on the scene, and it says, and Noah walked with God. And then the story focuses on a man by the name of Abraham, and it says, Abraham walked with God. And this is where the story really begins to lean and press in in Genesis chapter 12. And here's what God does with Abraham. God tells Abraham, listen, I'm going to make you into a mighty nation. Your wife, who is beyond the childbearing years, is going to miraculously uh, come with child, and then she is going to give birth to this son. And through this son, an entire nation is going to be established. I'm going to create a people for myself. And from those peoples, all of the nations of the earth will be blessed. As time goes on, Isaac shows up. He's the child of promise from Abraham. Isaac has a son named Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. Eventually, the 12 sons of Jacob find themselves in Egypt where they become slaves to the most powerful empire on the planet. And over a 400-year period of time, God, God goes silent doesn't engage, he's not with them, but in that 400 year period of time, this, this group of people become a nation of over a million people. And they're a slave nation, but they're a nation nonetheless. God is still not with them. We still don't see this promise that how is this group of slaves gonna be a people who change the world? And then you see a man emerge on the scene by the name of Moses. Moses now becomes a central figure for the next several books of the Bible. Moses is a man that God raised up to be a deliverer. He was a shepherd for 40 years. After being 40, year of, uh, uh, being 40 years in Egypt and now 40 years as an exile from Egypt, God shows up to Moses and says, you're gonna go back and you're gonna redeem my people. You're gonna go and tell Pharaoh it's time to let my people go. And we're gonna come back to that story in just a little bit. So Moses goes reluctantly, just like you and I would go reluctantly. God miraculously goes with him by his presence, by the power of God. God delivers Israel, this Hebrew people, from Egypt, and now they have been set free. And here is how they were set free, and this is significant. God's demonstrating his power through Moses, but the last demonstration of power was, is, was take, took place in what's called the Passover. The Passover is where Moses is told by God, tell the people to sacrifice a spotless lamb. Take the blood of the lamb, put it over the doorpost of your home. Judgment is coming on Egypt. But everyone who, by faith, takes the blood and puts it over the doorpost of your home, my judgment will pass over them, but everyone who is not covered by the blood of the perfect lamb, my judgment will fall. Judgment falls in Egypt. Egyptians are 
are, are, are judged. Those who have the blood of the lamb are spared. The next day, Pharaoh says, take your people and get out of here. And God delivered his people from slavery by means of sacrifice. Everybody with me say amen. Now, something happens immediately. The moment they are delivered, the story says this. Immediately, there was a cloud that hovered over the people of God by day and a pillar of fire by night. This was God's manifest presence with his people, something he had not done in the story leading up. Now that they have been redeemed, immediately his presence is with them and guiding them. Now, Fast forward 50 days later. So they leave Egypt, cloud by day, a fire by night. 50 days later, there's a mountain. Moses goes up on the mountain and the fire and the smoke, the cloud of God descends on the mountain. And there, God and Moses meet face to face and God gives two things to Moses. He gives him the 10 commandments and then he gives him the, the prescription of building what is called a tabernacle. Say, what is tabernacle? The tabernacle literally means a dwelling place. So what God is doing is saying, listen, I'm making a covenant with you. Here is how I want you to live. And then I want you to build this tabernacle because I'm gonna dwell among you. I'm gonna be with you. So he gives great detail of how to build this tabernacle because God is going to dwell with his people. That picks us up in the story at chapter 29. Everybody say, finally. Here we go. So at the end of this instruction of what to build in regards to the tabernacle, he is gonna tell him why the tabernacle is significant and what God is doing. This is what he says here in verse 45. He says, I will dwell among the people of Israel and be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord, their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that... I might dwell among, it, among them. I am the Lord, their God. Now, here's the big idea I wanna give you this morning. So if you're taking notes because you love Jesus, you're gonna write this down, all right? Here is the, here's the big phrase, and we're gonna spend the morning unpacking this phrase because this is significant for us. And here is what it is. God's presence, here's what we learn here. God's presence among us is the central purpose of our salvation and must become the central priority of our life as disciples. That God's presence among us is the central purpose of our salvation and must become the central priority of our life as disciples. Now look back with me if you would in verse 45. Let me unpack this for you. He says this, I will dwell among the people of Israel and I will be their God and they shall know that I am the Lord, their God, who brought them out of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord, their God. Now, dwell among them is a phrase that happens in these two verses twice. He's emphasizing this. My presence is gonna be with you. That's the whole point of the tabernacle. My presence among you. There's another few phrases that are repeated three times, and that is when he says, I will be their God. Three times, he, he describes himself as being their God. You say, what in the world is this about? This is about, listen to this, possession and presence. Possession and presence. God is telling Moses, I am gonna dwell among you. My presence is gonna be with you and I am gonna be your God. In other words, Moses is being told by God, here is why I've redeemed you. I wanna be with you and I want you to be with me. That's about presence. 
And I'm gonna be your God and you're gonna be my people. That's about possession. That he wants to dwell with them and them with him. He is going to be their God and they're gonna be his people. And this is the whole reason he's telling Moses to construct this tabernacle. Now, why in the world would he put so much emphasis here on this idea of presence and possession? Well, he tells us in the text here, this is the whole point of redemption. Look what he says now very carefully in verse 46. Look what he says again. And they shall know that I am the Lord, their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt. Now listen to this, that, everybody say that that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord, their God. This word, that there, is a great word. If you wanna circle one in your Bible, it's important because that implies purpose. Here's exactly what God is telling Moses. Moses, you wanna know why I have redeemed these people? You wanna know why I've gone through all of this to call you, to set you aside? You wanna know why I did all of the plagues and all of the miracles and why I have set you apart to be my people? It's because I want to dwell among you. The central purpose of God's deliverance of Egypt, or from Egypt rather, was so that God could be the God of the people and that he could dwell in their midst. Their exit from Egypt was not as much about freedom from slavery as much as it was being the people of God who dwell in the presence of God. Amen. It wasn't just about no more oppression. It was about experiencing and encountering the presence of God belonging to them and them belonging to him. Him dwelling in their midst and them dwelling in his midst. This is the whole purpose of this. And here's what I want you to see. This make this connection with you. There's a greater exodus that has happened for you and I. You see, the greater Moses has come and his name is Jesus. And by means of the sacrifice blood of Christ, the perfect lamb, when we by faith have our heart's door covered with it, we are freed from slavery, from to sin and death. And we are no longer captive and prisoners of this fallen world. We have now been set free, listen, for the purpose, not just of being free from sin, but experiencing a personal relationship with our creator for him to dwell in our midst. You see, the greater exodus that has occurred in our life has occurred for the same reason the first exodus occurred. Why? So that he might dwell among us. This is the central purpose of our salvation. It is for us to know him and to belong to him and to be with him. This is where we find meaning and purpose in life. This is where life has joy in the midst of circumstances that are not joyful. Why? Because it's in the presence of God that we experience while we were created. This is why the psalm writer says what they do in Psalm 16, verse 11. Look what he says. He says, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand, pleasures forevermore. You see, the reason that so many of us are not experiencing the fullness of our salvation is because we have forgotten the purpose of our salvation. If you wanna walk in the fullness of your salvation, you need to come to realize that the reason that you have been saved is not so that you can escape hell, but to experience the personal ongoing intimacy with God through the indwelling of the Spirit so that his presence dwells not just among you, but in you and you walking in that presence day in and day out. 
You have access into the presence of God. And that is where the abundant life of Christ is experienced. I love occasionally when I get the opportunity to go to Dallas Maverick basketball games. I love NBA basketball. I love getting to go to the games live there. The atmosphere is electric. And so most of the time, the games that I've gone to, I normally get the cheap tickets and sit in the cheap seats. Anybody with me on that? So I'm in the nosebleeds. And um, you're, you're better off just watching it on the screen because you're so far away from everything. Um, but just like in that arena, all the action's happening on the court. So uh, normally though, I'm so far removed from the court side um, that typically I just watch it on the screen. But there was an occasion a couple of years ago where uh, a buddy of mine who had a friend who now became a mutual friend, they called me and said, hey, listen, do you wanna go to the Mavs game? And I'm like, ah, yeah, mate, what, what's, tell me, Who's all going? I was like, hey, listen, David's going, and this is why that was so significant. David is the chaplain of the Dallas Mavericks. And so David is putting this group of guys together to go to the Dallas Mavericks game. And so when we get to go with David, here's what happens. David, because of his access to the team, we get tickets that most people don't get. So when we got to the game, we walked with David. David began to walk past security. Most of them knew who he was. He walks us right down to courtside. We didn't sit in the nosebleed. We sat close enough to smell the sweat of Luka Doncic. It was amazing. <laughs> and we're sitting there among the giant humans on the court. And we're, we're there and we're courtside. I'm like, we're at that place where if a loose ball, you're, you're dodging for these players jumping out at you. That's how close we were. And as we're hanging out, we're just so wrapped up in the game. I've never set that close. I mean, I'm right there in the middle of the action. And then David looks over and says, hey, y'all want a snack? And I'm like, yeah, where's the concession stand? He says, come with me. And then David gets up and he begins to walk, not up, but down. And as he walks down, we begin to realize he's flashing his badge and he's looking at us and he's going, they're with me. And we're walking with him. We walk right past security, right into the tunnel. We get escorted into backstage at behind all of where the basketball players are. We get to go into the locker room where we're hanging out with Donnie Nelson Jr. We're where the players go at halftime. There's this little food area where all the family of the players, J.J. Barea's wife was in there and Luca Doncic's girlfriend was over there. We're all hanging out. Uh, I think Dirk might've been hurt that game. And so he's out there and we're there, right there where all the players are backstage with everybody. We don't have to go to the concession stand and we got food like a buffet that's there waiting for us. That was the coolest experience ever, by the way. <laughs> now, I want you to imagine for a moment. Imagine for a moment we get to the game and David is like, all right, y'all follow me. And I'm like, no, 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 I'm good. Normally I really get comfortable at the, at the nosebleeds. I'm used to those seats. I'm just gonna go up there. No, 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 you don't understand. We're gonna be courtside. Now that's cool. I, I really, honestly, I'm content with just being up here. Like just, just get me in the nose. I've, I'm kind of uncomfortable. I've never sat down there. I've never been to that place. So let me just kind of hang up here. How foolish would that be? Now imagine I said, okay, I'm gonna go courtside, but then midway through at halftime when he says, hey, let's go back here. Let's go to the locker room. Let's go where the player's family is and let's go eat back there. Imagine if I said, no, 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 you guys go. That's fine. I'm gonna go up here and get a hot dog at the hot dog stand. You guys do your deal. Hey, tell me about what it was like when you get back. You think I did that? Nope. No, I'm down there. Literally, I got my camera out. I'm so one of those people now, right? I'm high-fiving Luca, and I'm like, I'm not washing my hands. I turned into a 13-year-old. 
Now, how foolish though would it have been for me to have that kind of access to say, I get to go to the locker room. I get to go where the family eats. I get to sit courtside and say, no, 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 I'm good. Let me hang up here in the upper deck where the nosebleed is. I'm gonna go eat my pretzel at the concession stand and I'm gonna forego the very present. Listen, I was there to watch the game, but listen, what I got more than watching the game, I got to experience the game. Do you recognize, believer, you have been redeemed for the very purpose of encountering, experiencing the presence of God? That you don't have to sit in the nosebleeds. You don't have to hang out at a concession stand. You got courtside seats to where the action is. Where's the action? Wherever the presence of God is, that's where the action is. And you get to go backstage and you get to be in the intimacy of his presence where you get to walk with him and talk with him. You don't have to be a fan in the stands. You can be among the friends. The problem with so many of us in a Christian life, this is what Francis Chan says in our selfie culture. Far too many of us are content with taking selfies with Moses then we are actually walking in the presence that Moses got to walk in because the invitation's ours. Church, you've been saved, reconciled to God for the purpose of experiencing his presence. So here's the second phrase. And I want you to see how these flow together. This is important. So look, look at this phrase again. God's presence among us is the central purpose of our salvation. And because this is true, this statement has to be true. If this is the, the, the central purpose of our salvation, then his presence must become the central priority of our life as disciples. If his presence was the purpose of redemption, then the purpose of our discipleship is encountering and experiencing his presence in our life on a daily basis. But most of us treat the presence like it's a peripheral thing when it's the priority. Are you with me? You don't sound like it. I want to unpack this and show you what I mean. So I want to go back to talk about the temple, the tabernacle for a minute. So we see chapter 25 through 29, God giving Moses a lot of detail about the tabernacle. I'm talking about a lot of specifics. There was a lot of symbolism, different parts and, and things that furniture wise and rooms and areas that were designated for certain purposes. Now we get lost in that, but when you really study it, all of the imagery and all of these are symbolic for things that mean something in regards to our relationship with God. But let me kind of summarize what's happening with the tabernacle and all the intricacies of the way in which it's supposed to be built. What God is doing with Moses, if you understand the symbol, is that the tabernacle is reminiscent of two places. It's reminiscent of Eden. So there's echoes of Eden in the tabernacle, but it's also giving us a window into the new Jerusalem that we read about last week in Revelation 21. So, so in essence, this tabernacle with all of the details and the symbols, we're getting a little taste of Eden and we're getting a little glimpse of heaven. And, and through this, God is showing, this is what I'm doing with humanity. But in the midst of all of this, there was one specific area and one specific item that really had more significance than everything else. And that was a location within the tabernacle called the Holy of Holies. 
This is where what we call the Shekinah glory of God dwell. This is where the presence of God in his fullness would dwell. Only one person could go into that place one time a year on the day of atonement. And the only reason that the high priest could go in there is because he needed to offer a sacrifice on behalf of the people. So he would prepare himself, one person get in that place. But now let's not overshadow this, that God was still dwelling among his people, even though there was limited access to his presence, and there were still some barriers to experiencing what we experienced in Eden and what we'll experience now in Christ. There was still access, but in the midst of the Holy of Holies, there was an article there. There was a piece of furniture there that we know as the Ark of the Covenant. Most of you have only heard of Ark of the Covenant from Ra Raiders of the Lost Ark, right? So, yeah, you're talking about that thing where the people, it peels the people's face back. Yeah, that's the thing I'm talking about. And here's the way this was designed. The Holy of Holies was designed to be the throne room of God. And the way the Ark of the Covenant was designed, it was designed to simulate or to symbolize the throne of God. So you see these two cherubims that are cover the ark. They have these big massive wings and they're hovering over the ark with their heads bowed down. It's, it's, it's giving us the imagery of what we see in Isaiah chapter six. When he got a glimpse into heaven, he saw the angelic beings hovering around the throne of God in a posture of humility. This is what the ark of the covenant was supposed to represent. The throne of God in the throne room of God. And then there is the location of the tabernacle. When they were called to construct this tabernacle, as they journeyed, when they moved, they would pack up the tabernacle and it would go with them. And when God would say stop, they would stop. And something interesting, God told them, I want the tabernacle to be at the very center of the camp. I don't want it on the peripheral. I want it in the center of the camp. Much like, think about the arena analogy I used earlier. In fact, let me show you a picture of what I'm talking about. This is a sketch of what we get with the biblical imagery from the instructions that God gave. Now notice this, doesn't this look like an arena? All of the tents around this and right at the center of the camp, you would have the presence of God and all of the, the, the faces of the tents would be facing. How do we know that? Because it talks about it as they saw the, the cloud descend, they would walk to the edge of their tent and they would stand in awe of the presence of God as he moved. So here's what you see, the centrality of the presence of God among his people. It was to be the primary focal point, always in front of them the central location that got their attention. This is the way that God set this up. And so I want you to do something. Turn now to Exodus chapter 40. I'm gonna show you what happens in the story. So a lot has happened between Exodus 29 and, and, and Exodus 40. We'll recap some of that next week. But uh, there was a minor setback. But at the end of Exodus 40, we finally see the tabernacle constructed and then we see God do something that's amazing. Look what happens in verse 34. So the, the, the tabernacle was finished. Then the cloud covered the tent of meetings and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meetings because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled it. So remember the cloud that I talked about earlier on? That as soon as redemption, as soon as they left Egypt, you had this cloud by day, pillar of fire by night that led them. This was the manifest presence of God among his people. You see now that that, that cloud is now covering the temple, which is signifying that the very presence of God is now in the temple 
over the temple. And I think, I honestly think what's happening is, is that the, 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 the center of the presence of God hovered over the temple and then his glory surrounded the camp. I think that's really a better biblical picture. Look what happens in verse 36. Throughout all of their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken out, uh, taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle day and a fire was in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all of their journeys. So how much of their journeys? Everybody say all. So the entire journey, I want you to hear what's happening here. The cloud would descend over the tabernacle. And if the, if the cloud descended and stopped, that's where they stopped. And they kept their eyes on the presence. And as the presence would move, they would then pack up the tabernacle and they would follow the cloud or the fire. And they would follow it until it stopped. And when it stopped, they would establish the tabernacle and the, the cloud and the fire would, would rest there and they would rest there. But as it moved, they moved. What's the point? The central focus and attention of the people of God was the presence of God. And it is what guided every step of the way. And this is what it's supposed to be for you and I. You see, God's presence among us must be the central priority of our life as disciples. You say, what does it look like? It looks like what it looked like here. Again, I want you to go back and look at what he says here. It says that it was the, the presence of the cloud and the fire was in their sight day and night. What does that mean? It means that they lived with an intense focus. Their face was always where? Toward the tabernacle. And now notice what happens, verse 36, throughout all of their journeys. Whenever the cloud was taken up over the tabernacle, the people would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, the people did not set out till the day it was taken out. Their entire lives were focused on what is God doing? Where is he going? Because our desire is to go where he goes and do what he does. If you want a real great commentary for this, write down in your notes, Numbers chapter nine, starting out of verse 11. There, there's this great emphasis given. It's like the longest little section where it says the same thing over and over again for the purpose of effect. It goes into great detail. It says, and then the people, the, the cloud and the fire would rest on the tabernacle and then the people would watch it. And as the cloud moved, they moved. If it moved for one day, they moved for one day. If it stopped for two days, they stopped for two days. If it was two weeks, then two weeks. If it was one month, one month. And the point that's being made in numbers was, was that they would not take a single step without the leading and guiding of God's presence directing and empowering them. Amen. What do their days look like? Hey, what are we gonna do today? I don't know, we're watching, we're waiting. Where do you think we're gonna go? I don't know. Keep watching the cloud. Oh, it's moving. Everybody get your stuff. Everybody get your back. Let's pack everything up. It's moving. Where are we going? We don't care. We don't know. All we know is that's where God's going and that's where we're going. Oh, we're gonna set up shop here? How long are we gonna be here? As long as the cloud is here. As long as the fire is here. Why? Because that's where God is. Hey, I heard Moses was talking to God last week and it sounded like God was gonna lead us to go face some nations and I heard that that army is pretty powerful. How are we going to fight? How, what are we gonna do? It doesn't matter if the cloud's with us, that's all we need. How are we gonna face our enemy? There's a fire and there's a cloud. You see this? 
And this is supposed to be, listen to me, not just a story we read to go, that's how they did it. This is an example of what Christ wants to do in us now that we have been recipients of his presence. You see, this demonstrates for us perfectly what the life of a disciple looks like. This is the model of the Christian life. As a church and as individuals, we would be a people who pursue the presence of the Holy Spirit as central. That means that we live with a yearning and a desire for his presence to lead us. We go where he goes. We stop where he stops. We do what he does. Our life is to be in a constant step. This is why Paul says over and over again in Galatians, he's like, walk in the spirit, live and abide in the spirit, keep in step with the spirit. This is what Jesus says in John chapter 15. Listen, abide in me and my words abide in you. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Why? Because your life is meant for keeping lockstep with me. So where I go, you go. What I do, you do. Why? Because it's not about what we do, it's about what he's doing and us joining that because that's where the action is. Amen. That's where the power is. Wherever God is, that's where we should want to be. This is why we are so desperate for the filling of the Holy Spirit continually in our life. This is why there needs to be a desperation because without the Holy Spirit, we're lost. See, the, the children of Israel, they had no hope apart from the presence of God. They were not equipped for this. They didn't even know where they were going for crying out loud. How were they gonna know when they got there? They were facing armies and nations that were more mighty than them. How were they ever gonna win victory in, in battle? How are they not gonna be defeated time and time again? They were desperate for the presence of God and we have got to come to the realization, church, that we too are desperate for his presence. This is why we need his filling. This is why the prayer, I know I've been beating this drum now for like 32 weeks this week. that we need to gather together in the middle of the week. Why? We're gonna put Jesus in the center of our week. Amen. You say, well, can I pray on my own? Yes, you should pray on your own. But Wednesday night is about us remembering, we're gathering as the church kind of in the arena going, hey, it's not about me and the presence of God. It's about we and the presence of God and we are desperately in need for it. We need him to show up mightily. We need to be reminded together corporately when we come together and pray that we as the people of God need the direction of God. We need his spirit to fill us and to move us so that whatever he wants to do with us as his people, we are keeping in lockstep with him. So what are we doing on Wednesday nights? We're setting up the tabernacle. And we're going, hey, let's just go, let's get where the action is. Where's the action? The very center of God's presence. And it's a great reminder. See, the, the reasons are so many of us who just don't have a heart for corporate prayer. And, and listen, I, I understand it, it's partly my fault because I put so little emphasis on this and, and we are so Americanized in our faith that it's always about just me and Jesus and what I need, failing to recognize it's about the people of God. That's why he says to Moses, he doesn't say, I'm gonna be your God. He says, I'm gonna be their God. What? The people. And this is what happens. See, listen. We see Israel with no hope, without any power. They were desperate they couldn't overcome their enemies, but when they kept lockstep with the presence of God, something amazing happens. You see, God sent them on a redemption mission to, to be a nation that through them, all nations will be blessed. How in the world could they do this apart from the presence of God? And the answer is they couldn't. 
But here's what happens, church. When we become a people who recognize the centrality of the presence of God, here's what we will become. Listen to this. We will be a people of God who are led by the presence of God, who experience the power of God to accomplish the mission of God. And this is what we desperately need. You see, what do you mean? See, led by the presence of God and empowered by his presence. You see, this is what happens when he becomes central. We are led and we experience power. Let me illustrate this with a couple of Bible examples. So if you go back, write in your notes, and you have to turn there now, but read Exodus 14. Something interesting happens. Now, when it says here that as the Spirit led them, they went. Wherever the cloud moved, they went. Do you realize as you read the story that God took them to some very hard places? Like they had to face enemies they couldn't defeat. They had to face moments of hunger. There were, there were places that God led them that were hard, but it was in those places where they learned how to depend and trust on God. And you see this out of the gate. Now, there's a phrase that we, we skip in Exodus 14. So when, they're, when they escape Egypt, the presence of God is there. And specifically, check this, it says that he led them not by way of the Philistines, but he led them by way of the sea. And so why does that matter? Well, the way of the Philistines would have been an easier journey and a shorter journey to where they were going. But it specifically says the reason he did not take them by the way of the Philistines was because the Philistines were a mighty army. And if they got to the area of the Philistines and saw their army, they weren't mature enough in their faith to continue to move forward. He's like, they would be panicked and full of fear and they would run back to Egypt. And he says, so I'm not, they're not ready for it. So God in his sovereignty says, I know what their maturity level is. I'm gonna take them by way of the sea. Now here's the dilemma of the way of the sea. As they make their way the way of the sea, it's a harder road it's a longer route, and here's what eventually happens. They come to the Red Sea, and the Egyptians decide, we had a change of mind. And so now here's what you have, the people of God led by the presence of God, and they're literally between a rock and a hard place. They got a sea they can't cross. They got an army they can't defeat. They can't turn back to Egypt because Egypt's on the way to kill them. So notice the sovereignty of God. He did not take them to a route that gave them a way to go back. He took them a longer, harder route to take them to a place of utter dependence and trust. So when they get to the edge of the waters, what happens? They can't go back because they'll be killed. They can't cross the water because it's too great. So what does God do? Wait and watch. Instructs Moses to lift up his staff and what happens? Miraculously, the power of God is unleashed from their life, or from, from, from Moses and the water is parted and people pass on dry ground and then God uses those same waters um, as a way of destroying the army of Egypt. What's the point of this? The point is, is that God, when he leads and directs our paths, he will lead us into places that he knows he will grow us and stretch us and to places where we have to depend on him to make it. So it doesn't matter where he leads you. Here's what you need to know. If he's with you and he's guiding you, he will come through for you, amen? See, what about the power of God? Like this is where you experience the power of God. Exodus chapter three, just write that in your notes. But I love the dialogue. When God calls Moses, he tells Moses, hey, I'm gonna send you back into Egypt where you've been on their most wanted list for 40 years because you murdered a cat. And you're gonna to go to Pharaoh, the most powerful leader on the planet, and you're gonna point your finger and say, hey, the God of Israel says you're gonna let the people go and you're gonna let them go now. This dude has been a shepherd for 40 years. He is not equipped for this. He has got a speech impediment. And now think about this. Moses says what to God? No way, Jack. 
Now, we like to throw stones at, 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 at Moses for this, don't we? Why in the world? God showed up in a fire in a bush and he, he said no to God. Just think about this. If God, on your way home today, you're driving home and you see a little brush fire, you pull over the side of the road, you walk off in the field and all of a sudden God speaks to you, is that gonna get your attention? Now, what if God says to you, hey, I need you right now to go to DFW and get a plane ticket to the heart of Afghanistan and you're gonna walk into Taliban headquarters, you're gonna point your finger on their chest and you're gonna say, God sent me to tell you to let every Christian out of here. How quickly are you buying that plane ticket? You're gonna be like, I had a bad burrito this morning. <laughs> and I love this because Moses looks at God and says, I can't do this, God. You, you don't understand, he's more powerful. I have the speech impediment. There's no way I can do this. And I love this because God does not give Moses self-help. Okay. He doesn't hold a mirror and say, I want you to look in the mirror and repeat after me, I am good enough and I'm smart enough and doggone it, people like me. So Moses is confessing, I am inadequate. I can't do this. And God says, good, we're on the same page, but I can, and I'm sending you. Just know I'm going with you. You see, it wasn't Moses' ability that allowed him to do what God called him to do. It was about the power and the presence of God that went with him. So here's what you need to know. Whatever it is that God has in front of you that he is calling you to, and you're like, man, I'm just an ordinary person and I can't do it and I don't think I can overcome it. Here's what you need to know. It's never been about your ability to do anything, but God's power unleashed through your life to accomplish anything. The story of redemption is God using ordinary people in extraordinary ways, not because of their extraordinary gifts, but because of God's extraordinary power. Amen. You see, when you're led by presence, the authority, think about the mission that God has given us. God has called you and me to step into this broken culture and to say God has called us to be a redemptive agent to call men and women out of slavery to sin and death. How in the world could we ever do it? It's because the Great Commission says, Lo, I am with you always to the end of the age. It is the power of God in us as people. You see this play out in Jericho. Remember the story of Jericho? God gives this, it's what seems to us lame instructions. They're gonna go do a battle with the Jericho, this, this, this city that they needed, fortified city. And God doesn't tell them to grab, just think about the absurdity of the story. Don't grab your swords, grab your flutes and your horns and your trumpets. Like in essence, he's saying, call the Navy SEALs off, bring the marching band. And here's what he says, I want you to march around the city every day for seven days. On the seventh day, march around the city seven times. But here's one thing we often miss in the story. What are they carrying with them as they march around the city? They are carrying the Ark of the Covenant. The very presence of God. So think about the imagery of the Ark being the throne of God. What are they doing? They have the Ark on the poles and they're carrying around in the midst, in the middle of the soldiers as they march around. They're carrying their king into battle. Because at the sound of the trumpet, they are not gonna fight. Their king is gonna fight on their behalf. The, the, it wasn't the sound of the trumpets that brought the walls down in Jericho. It was the presence of the almighty God who led them to that place. And that same God dwells inside of you. And I know what some of you are thinking. Man, this is an awesome story, but where's my cloud and where's my fire? Let me give the answer to that. You got something better than a cloud and something better than a fire. 
You, you see how you have something greater than a cloud with you. You have the spirit of God in you if you're a believer. You see, according to the Bible, God repeats history. You see, on the Exodus, you see this deliverance by means of blood sacrifice. And 50 days later, you see the presence of God descending on the people, prescribing a tabernacle so he can dwell among them. And then his presence would lead them through their journey of Egypt. Here's what you have. Jesus dies as our great redeemer. The lamb was slain for our sins. And did you know God's timing? 50 days later, God tells his disciples, go to Jerusalem, go to a room and wait on the Holy Spirit and fire from heaven fell in that room and the spirit of God filled his people. And then the rest of the story of the book of Acts, it is the people of God conquering the land, not in their power, but by the power of the presence of God that's in their life. The Holy Spirit filling us so that we might walk in this brand new power. Church, do you understand this morning? You have something much greater than a cloud of fire and a cloud of hovering over you. You have the very presence of Jesus inside of you if you're a believer. And God is calling you on this journey of letting the Spirit lead you and guide you every step of the way. I'm gonna get you to do me a favor. I'm gonna get you to bow your heads if you would just for a moment. We're gonna, we're gonna respond to this. And here's the two responses that I wanna give you. Just reverently, just keep your heads bowed and your eyes closed and listen intently. One question I wanna ask you this morning is this. And it's simply this, is the presence of God central in your life? Are you living your life led by presence? For some of you, the answer is no, because you've never trusted in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And this morning, you have an opportunity to confess your sin and ask Jesus to come and live inside of you, to change you from the inside out. And this morning, I'm gonna encourage you to do that. And if you pray today to receive Christ, I'm gonna get you in a moment to come out of your seat, to come and take the hand of one of our encouragers and just say, I needed Jesus in my life. And I really believe there are some of you right now in this room, and that is what you're doing. You're praying and asking Jesus to forgive you and to come live inside of you. And if you did that this morning, I'm gonna ask you to leave your seat in a moment and come and just take the hand of one of our encouragers and say, I ask Jesus to be my savior, or I want Jesus to become my savior. Others of you who know Christ today, maybe today you need to come to the realization that you're not living a life that's led by presence. You've been sitting in the nosebleeds when you got courtside seats. You've been hanging out the concession stand and ignoring where the action is of the Christian life, which is the presence of God. You say, where do I start with that? An acknowledgement is where you start. Confess it. And then ask God to reorder you so that you might live in his power once again. Father, I lay this before you and ask that you will do what only you can do, that is, turn our hearts toward heaven. Let us respond in obedience in Jesus' name, amen.